Well, there we go. Yay. All right. For some reason, the devil doesn't want us to do the passage tonight. That's all there is to it. So anyway, good to see you. Welcome to the study of Revelation again. Those joining you us online, we welcome you as well. And it's a joy to, uh, to be with you tonight. And we, last week we got started with the introduction and I hope it uh, kind of maybe shed some light on the book and the study coming up. Hopefully it did and we'll get started tonight. We see the first vision. There are more than 60 visions in Revelation and we're looking at the first of those tonight. So glad that you're here. Turn with me to chapter 1 starting verse 4. We'll do the entire chapter tonight. And uh, we'll get started. So let's pray together. Father, thank you tonight for the opportunity to study your word together. Revelation is an awesome book. I pray that you'd give us understanding. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us in every way possible tonight with the Spirit's help, Lord, to understand, to dig in, to see what is there so we can apply it to our lives. God, thank you for everyone who's here. I pray that you'd bless those who are online as well. And may you receive the glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, well, we begin tonight with a pop quiz from last week. So, 10 questions over last week's introduction. So, we saw last week there were three main problems in the seven churches of Asia Minor, and there were three images that addressed each of those problems. So, what was the problem of the image of the beast? Oh, you people are killing me. We're going to have to go back and study introduction again. So, no, you're right. It's the, you're right. Persecution, the Roman Empire was the beast. What was the false prophet? False teaching. That's exactly right. False teaching. So, you have persecution of the Roman Empire, false teaching. And then what was the prostitute? Cultural approval. Now, you're, you're doing great now. So, that's good. So, those are the three issues that are addressed in, uh, in the book of Revelation. So anytime you see the, the beast, that's the Roman Empire persecution. Anytime you see the false prophet, it's false teaching that's prevalent in the church. And anytime you see the prostitute or the harlot, as it's mentioned, uh, that is the cultural influence or the cultural approval they're trying to get. So we see all three of those even today. We'll talk more about that as we go along. What does the word revelation mean? Unveiling, exactly right, apocalypse, apocalypsis, the Greek word. It means to unveil or to uncover. How many visions are in the book? More than 60, that's exactly right. How many references to the Old Testament? Oh, you're looking at your notes now. That's not fair. More than 340 references to the Old Testament. Is it Revelation singular or plural? Singular, don't say revelations. It's the revelation of John. I listed a long list of Roman emperors last week. Who was the crazed emperor that, the, uh, that revelation was written during his reign? Domitian, exactly right. And then what's the difference between exegesis and eisegesis? What is exegesis? It means to draw out. Eisegesis means to read in, exactly right. So, what you do, how you interpret Revelation, you don't read into what's there with your own opinion or what's going on around the world or anything like that or in politics. You don't read into what's there. You draw out from what's there. And so, there's how you interpret Revelation in the greatest possible way. You did good. Once you got your notes out, you did awesome. And so, 
That's good. So we'll have our pop quizzes from time to time to, to make sure that uh, we're learning the material as we go along. Let's look chapter 1, verse 4, verses 4 through 8, the, John's greeting to the seven churches. He, last week we saw the prologue, verses 1 through 3. Let's pick up with verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia Minor, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, let's stop there for a moment. And, and first of all, whenever he begins a letter by saying grace and peace to you, who does that sound like? Sounds like Paul, doesn't it? Paul began his letters, grace and peace to you. Why did they do that? Grace was the Greek greeting, Irene. Peace, shalom was the Hebrew greeting. So it, that's, the, that's the, to the Greeks and the Hebrews, all the believers, both Jew and Gentile, I'm greeting you. So it's a greeting, grace being the Greek greeting and shalom being the peace or the Hebrew greeting. So that's why Paul and, and John did it in Revelation as well. From who? Jesus, the one who is, who was, and is to come. So what he's telling us is Jesus is eternal. Now, think back for a moment, all the way back to the Gospel of John. How did John begin his Gospel? In the beginning was the Word. He began it with the eternal nature of Jesus. Jesus did not have a beginning, does not have an ending. He is eternal. That's how he began the Gospel of John. That's how he begins the Revelation. Greetings, grace, and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and is to come, always has been, always will be. He is eternal. So he begins Revelation the exact same way that he began the Gospel of John. Now, then he says, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Who are they? What spirits are before the throne of God tonight in heaven? Well, we know of one Holy Spirit, not seven spirits. Because of this one phrase, charismatics and some Pentecostals believe there are seven spirits, not one Holy Spirit, but seven. You have a spirit of prophecy and a spirit of discernment and a spirit of peace and all that. That's not what he's talking about here. Also, uh, there is the belief in First Enoch, which is a non-canonical book, that there were seven different angels that hung around the throne of God. I don't think he's talking about that either. Seven in Scripture, especially Revelation, is the number of perfection or completion. So I believe that's what his, uh, John's wife saying, I saw the Spirit of God in his fullness, in his complete nature, standing before the throne, and he greets you. So, he's saying here, grace to you, greetings from Jesus and the Holy Spirit who are around the throne. So, you have the Trinity, right, to begin the book of Revelation, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Go to, verse, uh, go to the next verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the words martyr, the one who dies for the faith, that's what he did, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. Now, what does it mean, firstborn from the dead? Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons both believe 
the phrase twice is mentioned twice in the New Testament that Jesus is firstborn of the dead. They both believe that, Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons, that he was born at one time and didn't exist at one time. We believe he was born on earth, but before that he existed in heaven for eternity past. They believe he is not eternal. He's not God. Jesus had a birthday. He didn't exist before that. And they use this verse and the one in Colossians 1.18 to try to prove that the firstborn of the dead. In other words, he had a birthday. But what the word firstborn, prototokos, means, literally means is first of a rank. doesn't mean that you didn't exist at one time. It meant first in rank. So Jesus is. He is first in rank of all humanity. And that was declared in Colossians. It's declared here. First born in rank of everyone who has been born. He's first. And the ruler of the kings on earth. Now there are a lot of people today that the rulers of the earth are Putin or Biden or uh, Kim Jong-un or Justin Trudeau or those are the rulers. No, no, no. Those aren't the rulers. Those are the figureheads. But the ruler is Jesus. It says it right here. Jesus, firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on the earth. So we know right away, established very first thing in Revelation, that what appears to be going on in our world is not really going on. There is a spiritual realm behind what you see where God is in control and he's the ruler. He just allows men from time to time and women from time to time to have thrones, but they're not the rulers. He's the ruler. Then continue on verse 5. To him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Look at the order of that. He loves us, then he freed us. Past tense there, by the way. So notice the order there. It's important. Not, not that he, he freed us and then he loved us. He loved us, then he freed us from our sins. Why is that significant? Because it shows us that he loves us even when we're dirty. When we're not cleansed from sin. He loves us before we could ever love him. He loves us before we're clean. Now, those of us in church, we kind of have the image, well, he loves me now that I'm saved. He loves me a little more now that I'm saved. No, no. He loved you just as much before you were lost, while you were lost. So, he loves you first. He freed you second. So, notice the order that's significant there because it tells us something about Jesus. He loved you even while you were dirty, dead in sin. He still loved you even then, enough to free you from that. Look at verse 6. And he made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What does the word amen mean? So be it. It means also truth. So whenever someone says, amen, you're saying truth. Truth has just been spoken. And so you'll see that phrase over and over in Revelation, John declaring truth what I just saw. And he said it here, verse 7. Behold, he is coming 
with the clouds. This is now immediate reference to Jesus coming again. We're getting into it fast. Here's his coming. He's coming with the clouds. Now think back for a moment. In the Old Testament, whenever God showed up, he showed up in a cloud. Clouds represented his presence and his glory. Cloud would lead the Israelites. A cloud met with Moses on top of Mount Sinai. A cloud appeared before the Israelites. God spoke out of a cloud. Clouds represented God's presence. And then when Jesus was here, from time to time, clouds would envelop him. He's on the Mount of Transfiguration, and it says clouds appeared. And then whenever he ascended back to heaven, he did so in a cloud. And when he returns to earth, how's he going to come? He's going to come in a cloud. The glory of God will be present. So behold, he's coming with the clouds. And notice the next phrase. And every eye will see him. So those who believe in a two-stage second coming of Christ, the rapture first stage and the return of Christ being the second stage, those of you who believe in that, those of us who believe in that, you will see also that this must obviously be talking about the second coming, not the rapture. Because in the rapture, not every eye sees him, only believers. Here, every eye will see him. So it's his return. Now, this is significant because Jehovah Witnesses teach that Jesus has already come back. And it was private. Jehovah Witnesses predicted that Jesus would return to earth in 1874. They put together all of the, the generations and they put together all the facts and figures. By the way, people still do that today. You can't do that. We don't know when he's coming back. But they put together facts and figures and they, well, they figured this and the generations that and figured all of this and they came up with 1874. He's coming back. He didn't. So they said, ah, we missed it a generation. 40 more years. He'll come back 40 years from now in 1914. 1914 came and went. He didn't come back. And so they said, aha, wait a minute. He did come back. We were right. You just didn't see him. He came back privately. And they believe 1914, the millennium started. Well, this tells us they're false. Because it says when he comes back, every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him, it says in verse 7. So think about that. Those Roman soldiers that were nailing the nails and the crowd that was yelling, crucify, crucify, they are specifically going to be the ones who see him. Wow. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? That John, as he looks into heaven, specifically sees the ones who pierced him as the ones who will see it. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Why? Because he's returning and they are not ready. He's returning and they have devalued Christ. They have rejected Christ. So he's coming. They were wrong and they wail. 
Right now, there is a lot of devaluing of Jesus going on in our culture. There's a lot of it. They scoff and laugh and, and call, use his name in derisive terms. And there's a lot of devaluing Jesus now. But one day, one day when he returns, there will be wailing because they don't know him. So it's pretty powerful the way that John begins. Verse 8. I am at the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I was in a business this afternoon, and there was a lady sitting there. She said, God Almighty. She's right. She just used it in the wrong way. Because John, I thought immediately of this verse when she said it. The word almighty is an interesting word. It's the word pantocrator. It literally means the one who has his hand on everything. She was right. He's got his hand on everything. I was about to say that and she left. He's got his hand on everything. We are told he is God almighty. Just don't use that in a cursing way. But she was theologically accurate. He has his hand on everything. What a way to begin Revelation. Now, here's what I find interesting. A lot of people, when they study Revelation, they want to jump right into, how's it all going to end? John doesn't do that. He begins by telling you who he is. Not who we are. Not what's going to happen. Not what are some things, where, where's China in here and where's all the, all the politics in here and where are all the nations and what's going to take place. We'll get into that. But he begins the revelation not with what probably you want to know, but he begins it with something more important. Who Christ is. So what a great way to begin. Now let's go to letter B on your outline, the vision of the Son of Man. Now he has a vision. He sees Jesus. Verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So John tells us, there I was out exiled to the island of Patmos. How many of you have been to Patmos? Quite a few of you. You've gone with us on our trips there that we've gone over there. Whenever we go to Greece and retrace Paul's missionary journeys, we always take a, a, a boat tender 40 miles over to the island of Patmos. Patmos in biblical days, was and was the Alcatraz uh, of of San Francisco. Uh, it was out in the ocean. It was an island in the ocean that served as a prison, a, a jail without bars. You didn't need bars. The currents are too swift to escape and swim forty miles, and the sharks will get you before you get to land. And so there it is out in the Aegean Sea and the island of Patmos. So whenever they would want to banish someone to prison, the emperor, it had to be a really hard offense because it was hard labor. 
they banished you out to the island of Patmos where all that you had to do was work in the quarries. It's just a marble island, 10, 10 miles long, six miles wide, uh, and it's mar mostly marble and it's very hilly. And so they would work in the quarries there and that's all there was to do. Not a whole lot to do there today, by the way. There's about 3,000 people that live there. And there's not a lot to do except go down to the beach or look at the windmills or go up to the cave where John had the revelation. But that's about it today. There is a medical center there on Patmos today. They treat nothing but first aid. If you have something first aid can't treat, they fly you over to, uh, to Ephesus area in Turkey. But Patmos was used as a place where prisoners were banished and left to die. So Domitian hated John's message of Jesus so much, he banished him in the year 90 AD to die on the island of Patmos. And he thought, if I banish him to the island of Patmos, we will not hear from John anymore. <laughs> Boy, was he wrong. We're studying him 2,000 years later. You, didn't, you, can't, you can't silence God. He tried. So he banished him. Did John ever make it off the island? Yes, he did. Domitian died, and the emperor that followed Nerva uh, in 96 AD brought John back, and he lived in Ephesus the rest of his life. So he's only out there six years. So he was on the island of Patmos, and he said, I was out there because of my testimony of Jesus. In verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Now, let's look at the phrase, the Lord's Day. I was in the spirit on the Lord's Day. Now, we know the Lord's Day to be what? Sunday, right? Sabbath is Saturday, Lord's Day Sunday. We worship on the Lord's Day because Jesus resurrected on Sunday. But Lord's Day is mentioned here probably because... There was one day of the week that the Roman Empire requested you worship the emperor, and they called it the Emperor's Day. One day a week called the Emperor's Day. It would differ uh, days of the week, but they would worship and honor the emperor. And so I believe John was saying, the, it's not the Emperor's Day, it's God's Day. It's the Lord's Day. So I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. I find it interesting, the very first sensation he had was not what he saw. It was what he heard. So he's out there worshiping by himself. Nobody, him and a bunch of rocks out there. And he's worshiping by himself on, on the Lord's day. And he hears something behind him. And he turned and looked, and it was a loud voice like a trumpet. Now, think of a trumpet. I don't think of a voice like a trumpet. I think of a trumpet as something that blares out. And a voice that was so powerful. It blared like a trumpet, and it said, John, write down the words you're about to receive. Write them in a book and send them to the seven churches to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So the very first message John received was a hearing 
from the voice, Jesus, that said, write down what you're about to see. And he didn't say, send it to Garland. He said, send it to these seven churches of Asia Minor. So they got it first. So for us to know what it means for us, we have to know what it means to them. Why the seven churches? Why these seven churches? Well, been several theories. One say, because those are the places that had the post offices. Well, these were the seven postal districts of Asia Minor. That's possible. Some say, because if you look on a map and you, and you target each one of these seven, it makes a circle. And it does. It makes a circle. So, with these seven, he's covering the entire Roman Empire. Maybe. That's a possibility as well. Another theory is because seven is the number of completeness. I mean, it is, but why these seven? And others say that these seven, and we'll talk more about this as we go along, some say that these seven churches are representative of every church that's ever existed. That we are one of the seven. That every church out there is one of the seven. That's a very popular theory. Is it true or not? I'll give you pros and cons as we go along. But that's one theory, is that these seven are representative of every church that's ever existed. And that's why. But probably it's because those were the seven that completed the entire Roman Empire. Because that was the known world, known region of their time. By the way, Philadelphia today is Amman, Jordan, by the way. Not all of these uh, have cities that correspond to cities today. Philadelphia does. It's Amman, Jordan. But I also find it interesting that whenever the Apostle Paul wrote, he also wrote seven letters to seven churches. Right? Rome, Corinth, Galatia, Ephesus, Philippi, Colossae, Thessalonica. He wrote seven. So maybe it is the number of completeness. Verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, what were the lampstands? Let's look at verse 13 first. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Now, we're going to see in a moment that was Jesus. But what are the lampstands? Actually, the lampstands, the word is menorah, as it was Jewish menorahs as we know them, but he saw seven separate ones for the seven churches. If you go back to the Old Testament, there was one lampstand that had seven lamps in Exodus 25, 31 to 37. Here you don't have one lampstand, you have seven lampstands, and the light doesn't come from the lampstand, but from the lamps. The lampstand merely makes the light visible. So we're going to be told in a moment that the lampstands are the seven churches. So think about that. The lampstands don't, they don't produce the light. They display the light. The lampstand's not the light. It gives you the light. Why is that important? What's the purpose of our church? To display the light. We don't produce the light. We display the light. 
We're the ones that simply, we're not, we're, it doesn't come from us. Salvation doesn't come from us. doesn't come from the church. Our job is to display the light to the world, be the lampstand of Jesus here in Garland. So that is our task, to be the lampstand, not to be the light. He's the light. We just display the light. So Jesus is standing in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, and he has on a long robe. That's interesting, a long robe and a golden sash. It's interesting because they didn't wear long robes in those days. The only time you wore a long robe was if you had what, they, what we know as retiring, you stop working. You don't work anymore. Then you wear a long robe because it shows honor and dignity, shows that you're not in the workforce anymore. If you go out to work in, 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 the day, in that day, you wore something to work. But when you wore the long robe, you have ceased from your work. So he saw Jesus in heaven who had ceased from his work. He's now with dignity and with honor. And he had a golden sash around his chest. Who wore golden sashes around their chest? The great high priest. What was the great high priest's job in the tabernacle in the Old Testament? Well, he would go into the lampstand and he would tend it. Every day he would go in and he would fill it with oil and he would, he would clean out the soot and he would trim the wicks and he would inspect it very closely and he would care for it so the light could burn continually. So what does Jesus do for the lampstand here, the church? Well, he takes care of us daily. He fills us with oil. He cleans out the soot. He trims our wicks. He inspects us closely. He cares for us so we can burn the light daily. That's his job among the lampstands. Verse 14. The hairs of his head were white. That meant dignity and honor. Like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. This is the only physical description we're ever given of Jesus in the New Testament. Did you know that? We always think, well, he had long hair, he had a beard, he had off skin. We don't know those things. We're not told in the Bible what he looked like. This is the only description we're given of what he looked like. Verse 16, and in his right hand, that was authority, he held seven stars. Who are the seven stars? They're the leaders of the seven churches. So he's holding the leaders in his hands. Boy, that's my prayer here at this lampstand. Jesus hold us as leaders in his hand. We need him. We need to be in the middle of his hand. And from his mouth, verse 16, came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. 
The sharp two-edged sword, that sounds familiar, right? Wrong. The two-edged sword in Scripture was the Bible in Hebrews 4.12, right? That's the different word. It's a different word that's used. The word that's used in Hebrews 4.12 for the Word of God is a, is a two-edged sword was the word that meant dagger. It's the one that Peter had when he cut off the ear of the high servant. It was it's called a makari. It's a dagger. It's for precise work. It's for, it's for cutting things. It's for whittling. It's for doing things you need done. You just carried it in your, in your belt. It was very small. But that's not the word used here. Different words used here. This is the word that is used, rompea. Rompea was a large, long sword. And that wasn't used for precise work on a daily basis. That was used for war and battles. When you're going to an enemy and you need to destroy the enemy, you took the rompea. So whenever John saw Jesus, the vision, and out of his mouth came not just a little precise little knife, a sword that destroyed, it came for battle. You see, folks, the first time Jesus came, he very, came very obscure, very humble. Second time he comes, he's a mighty warrior because he's given every one of us opportunity to receive He's coming as a mighty warrior, and in his mouth is the sword that destroys in battle. So John looked, his hair, his eyes flaming like fire, his, his feet like burnished brass or bronze. His, he speaks, and it's like a waterfall cascading where you can't even hear yourself. And, and, and his mouth, his sword comes out. And then you try to look at his face. It's like trying to look into the sun. You can't stand it. And John said in verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I were dead. What a vision that strikes you dead. Now hold on for a second. John was a disciple of Jesus, right? James and John. So he saw Jesus walking beside the sea, and Jesus said, follow me, and he laid down his nets and followed him. And for the next three years, he was with him 24-7. And now, he hadn't seen him for 60 years. John hadn't seen Jesus for 60 years. He ascended in 30 A.D. It's now 90 A.D. First time he saw him in 60 years, boy, had Jesus changed. And the sight was so powerful, he said, I fell down like I was dead. By the way, Charles Spurgeon said, you're never more alive than when you're dead at the feet of Jesus. But he fell down as if he was dead. But he laid his right hand on me. Verse 17, and he said, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and hell. Now, if I were to ask you tonight, without reading this passage, who has the keys of hell? Most people say the devil. 
No, he doesn't. He's not even powerful enough to have keys to his own kingdom. He's not the, he's not the Lord of hell. Jesus is the Lord of hell. He even went to hell the three days between, according to Second Peter, the three days between his crucifixion and his resurrection to proclaim liberty to the captives, captives down there. And so he is, he is the one with the keys to hell, not Satan. He is. So, verse 19, he says, Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, those that are to take place after this. So, some people say that he is kind of setting up a, an outline for the remainder of the book. And if you look at the first three chapters of uh, of uh, Revelation, it's basically the messages to the churches. Once we get to chapter 4 through 22, it all changes. It's more about things to come. So the next two Wednesday nights, we're going to talk about what the letters to the churches were, and then starting three weeks from tonight, things that are to come in the future. But look what he says, though, in verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars... That you saw in my right hand. So now Jesus has given us the, the explanation into the, the, or the interpretation rather of what he saw. As for the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So, we immediately know the visions interpreted for us by Christ himself. So, the stars are the angels of the churches and the lampstands of the churches themselves. Who are the angels of the churches? Good question, right? Let me give you some theories. One theory is that it's the pastors. Now, I know my wife doesn't think I'm an angel, but according to this theory, the pastors of the churches are the angels of the churches. Why the word angel? Because what does the word angel mean? Messenger. I'm the messenger. The pastors are the messengers. They're the ones that receive the word and give it to you Sundays and Wednesdays. So because of the word angelos that is used here, meaning messenger, angel, uh, then their most common theory is that he's talking about the stars are the pastors of the seven churches. There are a couple other theories also, though. One theory is that the guardian angels of the churches. And that theory is every church has a guardian angel. Well, we're not told that any other place. But those are saying, aha, that's the angel of the churches. God assigns a guardian angel to every church out there. And so you, you may, some of you may have heard that theory before. How many of you have heard that theory? Okay, all right, yeah, all right, some. So that theory is out there that every church has a guardian angel, but we're not really told that other than here. Another theory uh, is that these are representatives, so it could be any leader. It doesn't have to be the, the pastor. It could be any leader of the church. It could be the angel of the church. But the most common theory is because the word angelos that's used 
that he says, he gives a description. The seven stars I was holding in my hand are the pastors of the churches, and the seven lampstands are the churches themselves. So, we begin tonight by looking at John on the island of Patmos on the Lord's Day. Here's the vision, sees Jesus for the first time in 70 years, falls down dead at his feet, and Jesus says, get up, I'm going to give you a message that you need to give to my people. And so starting next Wednesday night, we will start looking at the church at Ephesus, and then Smyrna, and then Pergamum, and we'll make that circle all the way around the Roman Empire, because each church is unique and different. And I think you'll see some parallels today of what's going on in our world. Then starting in chapter 4, we'll start looking at things that will begin to happen in the future. All right, any questions or comments before we close? All right, good to see you tonight. We will continue on next week in chapter 2. Let's pray together. Father, thank you tonight for your word. Thank you, Father, that you hold the churches in your hands. And God, it is my prayer that you would hold every one of our leaders, this church, that God, you would help us to, be, to shine the light in the greatest possible way that we can. And may we be a church, God, that brings glory to you. Jesus, thank you. Thank you, thank you that you are the one who you are now in heaven, the one almighty, all-powerful, the Lord of heaven and the Lord of earth. And God, I just pray as we go throughout the rest of this book, we will see you in a fresh and a new way. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Good to see you. God bless you. See you Sunday.